passage we read a few minutes ago, if you would. Job 31, 13 through 15. Antonia Sr. Um, is a British journalist, and when I read her article from the London Times that was back on July 1st, 2010, and she had always firmly supported abortion. But then she got pregnant, and she quotes in the article, Then came a baby, and everything changed. My moral certainty about abortion is wavering. My, abolition, or my absolutist position is under siege. And eventually, though, if you read down through the article, um, she hardens back to her absolutist support of abortion. Yet, strangely enough, at least to me, um, surprisingly, she continues to acknowledge that life begins at conception, even though she thinks abortion is okay. Um, she said again in the article, and I quote, My daughter was formed at conception. Uh, any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking a life. And in that paragraph, she concludes with this. Yes, abortion is killing, but it is the lesser evil. What in the world could be a greater evil than taking a human life? I'm, in Senior's view, even worse than abortion and taking someone's life would be putting limits on a woman's right to control her reproduction. Again, I'm, 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 let me quote her. You cannot separate women's rights from their right to fertility control. The single biggest factor in women's liberation was our newly founded ability to impose our will on our, bio, on our biology. The nearly, she says, the nearly 200,000 babies aborted in the UK every year is the lesser evil, no matter how you define life. In other words, the greatest thing we have to have is women's rights, no matter what, and even killing 200,000 people a year is considered a lesser evil in comparison. Senior ends her article with this chilling line. Listen to this. She says, To defend women's rights, you must be prepared to kill. How in the world has it come to the point in our country and in our world that so many people are compared to kill to have their own rights. Like senior, most scientifically informed people, I'm not sure if you know this or not, most scientifically informed people believe and know that life begins at conception. But according to, and I'm not sure if you've studied it, but I've been reading up on it, but according to what's called personhood theory, that the fetus is not human. It's not, it's not a person until after birth and can be killed without any moral consequence at all. Uh, personhood theory states that we have no moral obligation to protect the fetus until it attains personhood. The problem with is that there's all kinds of different uh, views and understandings of what personhood is. 
So in order to understand the deeper roots of abortion, we must ask this question. Where did this body-person dichotomy come from, and why does it have so much inhumane, sinful consequences in our lives and in our culture? And when you take personhood theory from a secular viewpoint and in contrast to the biblical worldview that is completely holistic, you'll find that the scriptures take an integrated approach to the body and soul, meaning this, that everyone who is human is a person. Everyone who is human is a person from conception. See, people who are persuaded by the abortion script see the fetus as no more than just a thing and therefore is not, does not have any moral value or worth at all. The reason why I chose Job 31 and the text that we're going to look at today is because it asks the questions about the people. And are they a person? And when do those rights begin? And how long do they last? And under what circumstances are they given? If you look at, and I know that you didn't, but if you take the time to read all of Job 31, our little section or our little paragraph is just one little vignette or scenario in the midst of many. Job is defending himself and his integrity to all of his friends who are questioning in his life why he has endured so much suffering from the hand of God. And they're thinking it must be because he has done something sinful or wrong. And so Job is taking the time to defend himself. And he's examining his life. And he does so in many, many areas of his life. And so in those scenarios that he mentions in Job 31... He, in this section, is inviting God into the conversation because he wants everyone to know that his worldview is this, is that God has something to do with what tell you as he examines the totality of his life before God, that he believes that he has integrity, and this he knows, God sees it all. I think Job would agree with me if I would tell you this morning that it is good for us it is good for us on Sanctity of Life Sunday and on a regular basis, anytime. It is good for us to take a step back and look at our lives, examine ourselves, evaluate ourselves honestly and humbly before God to see if the life that we are living and the choices that we are making, including about the sanctity of life, are pleasing in His sight. Because here's what Job says at the outset. I want you to know that everything you do you do in the eyes and the sight of God. In fact, let me say that that's one thing that demonstrates the fact that we are Christians, is it not? Is that God is involved in everything in our lives. All of your business, all of your leisure and entertainment choices, all of your relationships, all of your life has to do with God. So when Job says in 31.4, does he not see my ways... And number all my steps, what he's saying is, is that he does. He sees every scenario in your life. And if we evaluated your life or my life, and we marked them off by if scenarios, and we went through your life, as Job has gone through his before his friends, what would God find? See, Job wants us to know that every scenario in our lives, including how we view the unborn, they are not just something on a human level. See, it's primarily something on a God level. So for Christians, let me put it to you this way. Based on the fact that God sees everything and evaluates everything in our lives, see, for Christians, abortion is not just a social issue, although it is. Abortion is not just or primarily a political issue, 
And it is. Abortion is not a women's right issue only. Abortion is, for the Christian, is first and foremost a God issue. Do you understand that? See, that's the difference. That's what makes us Christian. That's what makes us different than people in the world. Because for them, it's a woman's right or a social right or a political issue. For us, it is a God issue. And Job does not leave it to any misunderstanding about how important it is to bring God into every scenario of your life. 31.6, here's what he says. Let me be weighed in the balance and let God know my integrity. See, he brings God into it. 31.14, what shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, when he asks me about my life and he evaluates me, what shall I answer him? See, he brings God into it. 31.24, for I was in terror of calamity from God. See, he, he fears God when he makes choices, when he decides what his life is about and how he, what side he takes on issues. See, and I could not have faced his majesty. 31.28, for I would not have been I would, for I would have been false to God above. Verse 35, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. You see what Job is doing? And I believe that we as a church need to do this. We need to invoke and bring God into every issue we face. We do not get our cues. Hear me. We do not get our cues and we do not get our convictions from any aspect of our society or culture. We get our cues as Christians from God and his word. See, I am not pro-life because I am Republican, because I'm not. I get my view of pro-life because I am redeemed. See, I do not, I am not against racism because I'm a Democrat, because I'm not. I'm against racism because I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not the politics, it's not the views of society, it's not whether I'm a woman and I have these views because of that, it's not because of my race or my, you know what it is? I get my views on life on every area and scenario of my life because I'm a Christian and I bring God into it in his word. So that being the case, as Job sets the table for us and for our little one scenario out of all the 16 ifs, we're going to tackle one of them. So let's see what the Bible says. See what God says, where we get our cues and convictions about the sanctity of life. And what I would tell you that Job is going to point out in this passage is that the Bible teaches that the sanctity of life happens from the womb to the tomb. That we as Christians who believe in the sanctity of life do not stop just with babies and birth. We believe in the sanctity of life, that all of life is valuable, all of life is precious, because you are a person from the beginning of conception to the time that you die, all the way across all the stages of the life of, of life, God honors life and values it. And so should we. See, God cares about and is involved in human justice on every stage of life. So let's look at our text, and we're going to unpack both of those things. That God, his view of the sanctity of life in the womb, and then all the way to the tomb. We're going to look at both of those uh, sides of the argument. So look at verses 13 and 14. Let me read them again for you. If I rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? 
And I read that text as I studied this week, and I said, what is the basis of Job's sense of helplessness and guilt before God if he has treated his male or female servants poorly? See, if he has ignored their cry and complaint of unfair treatment or injustice, why is Job trembling at the prospect of despising their claims? You know what it is? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 15. He says, Did not he who made me in the womb make him? See, I'm the master and they're the servants, but didn't God make me in the womb and make them in the womb? He says, and did not one or the same one, literally in Hebrew, did not the same one fashion us in the womb? See, Job, listen to this, Job traces the rights of his servants back to the womb. He does not trace it back to their birth. He instead traces it before their birth, you see it? Before their birth, to the womb. See, because they were already a person then, despite personhood theory. See, his servants who served him were already people before they were ever born. Not when they became born, not when they became his servants. No, they were already people, and because they were already people or a person, they had built-in rights given to them by God from the womb. So as we talk about sanctity of life starts in the womb, see, this is the truth. What we were in the womb is the ground of our, and let me give you an American phrase, our inalienable inalienable human rights. God is at work in every baby and in every single womb. God is sovereign over the womb. And so abortion is not about woman's rights grounded in societal opinion. But abortion is about babies' rights, who are people, and God's rights, who, is, who are sovereign, based and grounded in scriptural truth. So you have to ask yourself, where do I get my views? Are they grounded in societal opinion, or are they grounded in scriptural truth? So abortion is wrong. I'll just state it clearly. Abortion is wrong, and it is an attack on the rights of our Creator. Abortion is wrong because it's idolatry in the sense that it values what the creature says, people and their rights, more than what God says, who created them and gave them their rights. So let's look at, and and this is the brunt of my message today, let's look at God's sovereignty over over the womb as depicted in our passage and a few other ones that support it. The text says, let me read it one more time, he who made me, Job says, he who made me in the womb. And the word made me is a general term, and it means to make something. It means to manufacture something. It's used a multiple of times, multiple times, all throughout the creation account in the book of Genesis, when it says, and God made, and God made the morning, and he made the trees, and he made the animals. It's a, it's a general term that God just made everything. But then, because every baby in the womb is a work of God, and a work of art, a masterpiece, a, a work of God's sovereignty, the Bible gets very specific uh, when it uses when it talks about the womb in Genesis and God making people. Listen to these verses. Genesis 25, 23, talking about Isaac and Ishmael. There are two nations in your womb. Two nations in your womb. Not just the two people that were being born, 
but the potential of two nations in her womb. Genesis 29:31. When the Lord saw Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Genesis 30 and verse 2, Jacob talking to Rachel. She was mad at him because she couldn't have a baby. And here it says, Jacob says to her, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Again in Genesis, same chapter, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And lastly in Genesis, and this is just Genesis, there's so many other verses throughout so many other books of the Bible. Genesis 38, 27, when the time of her labor came, they were twins in her room, and that was Perez and Zerah, that they were twins. So when you read those verses, and again, those just in Genesis, here's what you find, hear me. God is sovereign over the womb, but how sovereign is he? When he says he makes people in the womb, what does it mean? Just from these texts, it, here's what it means. He is sovereign over if you have a baby. I have so many friends, and my heart goes out to them for many, many years, couldn't have children, and it's difficult, and I know it is. I've sat down and talked with them about you're joyful and happy about people getting pregnant and having a baby, and you're so happy for them, but in your heart, it's very difficult, and it brings you to tears because you're literally wanting what they have, and you're wondering why God hasn't allowed it. But can I tell you, whether you have a baby or you don't have a baby, that's God's sovereignty. So God is sovereign if you have a baby, but more. He's sovereign when you have a baby. Sarah couldn't have one for the longest time in her life, and she had one when she was too old, so to speak. Rachel couldn't have one, it says, till God opened her womb. So he, he's sovereign over if you have a baby. He's sovereign when you have a baby. He's sovereign over the gender of the baby because he brings boys. Hannah couldn't have a, a, a child, and she wanted a son, and God gave her a boy. There were twins in the, room, uh, in the womb, Isaac and Ishmael, Zerah and, and, and uh, Perez. God puts the gender of the child in the womb. So if you have a baby, when you have a baby, the gender of the baby, but, and the number of the babies, and some people had one child. In our text, two of them had twins. So whether you have one child, two babies, three babies, more babies, God is sovereign over all that. And can I tell you, he's also sovereign over the formation of babies. Did you see that in the text? Because in verse 15 of Job 31, it says this, and did not the same one, meaning God, Here's the word. Didn't he fashion us in the womb? Now, making, Job used earlier, he said, he made me. That's a generic term or general term. The word fashion is far more specific. It is a detailed word. And it means to prepare or to make ready in advance. So here's what he's saying. Yeah, Job's saying, listen, God made me in the womb. He makes everybody in the womb. But, but it's not just a generic thing where God gets the process going and has nothing else to do with it. No, he is intricately involved in every detail of every baby in the womb and every birth. The word fashion is used throughout the prophecies of Isaiah. And in it, it is used to describe this. Formation shaping something and sometimes even an idol into an exact image it gives the the idea in your mind of a potter who is not just making a generic shape on his wheel but no he's doing something exactly what someone else ordered he's making something unique a vessel that's no, unlike any other one and that's the way god's hands are moving and working in the womb of someone 
psalmist puts it this way. Psalm 139, 13, David cries out, For you, God, formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. You knitted me together. See, it's like integral interweaving. God, you put all the pieces, the inward parts in place. You made me exactly. And that's what the word means, to shape, to intertwine. It means to weave, put things together in an exact diagram, so to speak. Job uses the word in this way. He says in Job 10, 11, God, you clothe me with skin and you knit me together with bones and sinew. In other words, God, you put the skin on me. You are the ones who put bones in me. You arrange my muscles. You put all the nerves together. God, you are such a great and awesome God that you put me together exactly how I was made. My sister Michelle, who's I, th- I know she's watching today, and you didn't hear this from me, but she'll be 60 on two, but that's another whole story. Um, back in the 1960s, um, doctors were giving women a drug called thalidomide. And thalidomide was supposed to be a drug given to women who were pregnant beca- to help them deal with their morning sickness. So it was supposed to help them not be so sick, obviously. What they didn't realize is that drug would cause birth defects. And it, one in particular that was often a result of this medication was uh, the growth of your limbs. Uh, my mom took that medication not knowing. My sister Michelle, um, when she was born and a little bit later when she started to crawl, they started to notice that she was favoring one side and she would lean that way a little bit more. She couldn't balance herself evenly with her arms. And so after some investigation and some tests and x-rays and so forth, they realized that you have two bones in your, and I'm no doctor, you have an ulnus and a radius. Oh, she didn't have a radius bone. And her ulna, the bone that was in her left arm, was not attached properly. And so they had to take a tendon out of her body and put one in there and properly attach it to the elbow so that she could get some flexibility. So if my sister was here today, she was showing her left arm. She has a very big scar here and a very big one on her elbow. And her arm doesn't, it has about maybe 75% flexibility. She can't go like this. She can go about like this. And uh, she, she can't turn her hand flat like, you go like that. She can do that with her right hand, but she can't do that with her left hand. Um, she, she always wanted to play piano. She ended up playing the trumpet and did it, was awesome at it. Um, but that was what happened, and, and, and that's what happened. But can I tell you this? God made my sister's bones, and he made her without one. And he made the muscles and the sinews of her body. And the reason my sister's arm is like that and, and her hand can't quite do all those things is because God is sovereign in the womb. God is in control. God has a purpose for that. My daughter, Mackenzie, was born with a genetic defect in her ears. Now, we didn't know that up front until she was about three years old, and she had what's called clostiotoma, and they are little ear tumors, not cancerous, but just tumors that are very microscopic that she was born with in her ears. And by the time she was three, her ears were starting to get infected and have all kinds of problems. And we thought it was just normal things until the doctors, we went to Children's Hospital and we found out it was clostiotoma. And so she lost 
uh, somewhat hearing in her left ear. It's like you put an earplug in your ear. If you, you stop it, that's how much she can hear. She lost a little bit less in her right ear. But my, da- my daughter's ear tumors and her lack of hearing and needing a hearing aid at times, you know what, that, that was all designed by God. God had that. He's sovereign in control. And you know, for those things and less, people get rid of their children and abort them before they're born. I read an article this week that said there was a, a, a family whose child was known to have club foot before they were born, and the doctors encouraged them to have an abortion, knowing, though, that club foot today is an easy thing to fix. And they obviously didn't do that. But can I tell you this? God is sovereign. Whether it's a drug that my mom took, whether it's a genetic defect of my daughter from birth, whether it's something that your child was born. See, can I tell you this? God has formed them. He didn't just make your child or mine. He didn't just make my... Listen, he formed them. See, he fashioned them. He put all the inner parts and all the nerves and the muscles and the bones and everything. And that's why the psalmist David said after he realizes how God made him so intricately, he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We stand in awe of God and who he is because he is sovereign over the womb. People are not. God is. So, so, see, sanctity of life is from the womb. It starts because you are a person the moment that you are conceived. But it's more than that. Sanctity is not just from the womb, it's to the tomb. Did you note in the text that when Job talks about your rights and things and who you are in verse 15, he stresses that we have, that he and his servants together, look at it, he and his servants have a fundamental equality. Did not he who made me in the womb, see, same exact verb, make him. So here's what Job's saying, do you see it? God made me in the womb, and I was made, and I became the master. God made you in the womb equally to me, and and God made you servants. So made me, made him, they are the exact same words. We are equally made in the image of God. And I can't even begin to tell you how important that truth is. We in our day, on so many issues, and I'm going to tell you about racism and all kinds of, and, and this, and abortion, and We are equally made in the image of God, and it doesn't matter what status, race, or background you have in this world as an adult. We all owe our all to God. We are all utterly dependent on Him. Even the four founders of America could get that one right. It says in our Declaration of Independence that we are endowed by our Creator to have certain inalienable rights. And here's one of them. All men are created equal. Now listen, this is how far we've come away from even that in America. Because here's what, listen to the founding fathers who wrote the Declaration of Listen to what Thomas Jefferson says. The fact that we are created equal, that those things don't make us different at all. Listen, and we hold these truths, what? To be self-evident. You know what the, the writers of our Declaration said? That these truths are so obvious by sheer logic that I don't even have to defend them. How far have we come in America? How far have we come? That they are not self-evident anymore. In fact, to a, you know, a majority of people, they are not evident at all anymore. You know why? Because we have forgotten the fact that we are all derivative. 
We are not absolute or self-sufficient. Job was pointing out that we all, no matter who we are, what status we have, we all belong to our creator. We are not our own. We don't have self-existence. We exist by God and for God. We are all made in his likeness, and therefore, on that level, we are all equal with one another. And Job said, that's true of me and my servants. I may be the master, and you may be the servants, but here's what the truth is. Before God, we are all equal because we are all made in the image of God. And did you catch what he didn't say in verse 15? Job does not pay any attention. Listen to this. He doesn't pay any attention at all to what his servants, parents, or his parents contributed to the whole thing. None at all. If parents were coming from a rich family or a poor family or the master's family or the servant's parents, he doesn't say anything. Did you notice he doesn't say anything at all? When he talks about our equality, he doesn't say anything about, at all about the color of the skin, the race, or the ethnicity. You know why? Because it doesn't matter about your race and your status and who you are and what position you hold in life. Because none of those, change, those things change the fact that before God, we are equal. We're equal. God made me in the womb, and God made him in the womb. It's called equality. Because God made us in his image. Now let me tell you, as I close today, that has staggering ramifications. Staggering. The baby in the womb is the work of God. And don't let anyone ever tell you that babies come about just because of natural development. There are stages, and it's scientific, and all those things we know are true. But can I tell you this? If all you see when a baby's born, and I had the privilege of being in the presence of my children being born, what a, what a miraculous thing it is. But can I tell you this? If you think that's all by natural design or natural development, it is not. There is so much more. You can see the hand of God working in the birth of every single baby. And what's happening in the womb is being done by him. And so here's what it means. To attack a little person, and that's what I would call them, to attack, attack this little unburned person, no matter how God has formed them, no matter how God has fashioned them, whatever reason that they were conceived is an attack on God himself. Therefore, ready? Therefore, racism is an attack on God. You know why? Because God made you black or God made you white, or God made you Hispanic, or Indian, or Asian. See, God made you that way. And so when we hold, if we are racist, and we have grudges, or we hate other people of other races, and we think that we're better than them, see, it's an attack on God, because he made us that way. Can I tell you this? Listen, transgenderism is an attack on God. Why? Scriptures say multiple times, and God made them male and female. So transgenderism is not just a social issue. It is an attack on God, our creator, who made us the way that we are. He designed our gender. And to not keep that gender or try to change that gender is rebellion against his authority. Homosexuality is an attack on God. Why? Because God made and designed marriage to be between a man and a woman for life. It's an attack on God. 
So white people are not superior to black people, and black people are not superior to white people. You know why? Because we are equally made in the image of God. Men are not superior to women, and women are not superior to men. Why? Because we are made equally in the image of God. And Job says, listen, you better fear and tremble before him. He says, what shall I do when God asks me questions, when God inquires me, when God rises up? What am I going to say? Can I tell you this? In America and around the world, we have a lot to be accountable for. A lot. Have you ever seen, and let me close with this, have you ever seen, it's, I, I couldn't show it today, I wanted to on the screen, it's a little too graphic, although it's beautiful. Have you ever seen the classic picture, 1999, Michael Clancy took a picture of a, a baby that was being, having surgery at 24 weeks, still in the womb, on spinal bifida, and they were correcting the spine uh, before his birth, and the little baby, I think his name was Samuel, when there, he, he, he stuck his little hand and arm out and grabbed the doctor's finger with his little hand. It is beautiful picture. And eventually, a number of years later, Michael Clancy, who took the picture of that, wrote a book called Hand of Hope. And in it, he tells the story behind the picture and how the doctors tried to cover up that it really didn't happen that way and it was completely an accident and he was there and took the picture and knew he said listen i know the story and that anesthesia wore off too quickly and the and the baby became aware of everything and purposely reached out and grabbed that doctor's finger with his hand he goes i was there i saw it i thought about that picture and i thought about that book and i thought about women this morning who hear my message and men whose lives have been affected by abortion and having one in the past. And how they're going to hear this message this morning. Can I close with this? That there is a hand of hope. There is a hand of hope, not just for babies, although there is. But that hand of hope is God's. And can I tell you, if you feel the guilt or shame of an abortion in your life that took place in the past, can I tell you, our Lord God and his church has much compassion for you as he does for all of us who are sinners. And his hand of hope is reaching out to you today if you're here or you're listening and that's been part of your past. Can I tell you there's a hand of hope and that hand of hope that God has, you know how it started? A little hand of baby Jesus who came out of the womb and his little hand grew up into a big hand. And that hand touched people's lives and healed them. And that hand was willing to touch lepers and unclean people and tax collectors. And that hand eventually was nailed to the cross of Calvary in payment for your sins and mine, including abortion. And that hand of hope, the hand of Jesus Christ, the hand that was nailed on the cross, still reaches out today to you as it did to me and all those who know him and offers forgiveness and grace and mercy and love and reconciliation and restoration to all who will put their faith and trust in him. We, we bring that hand of hope to you today and invite you to come and surrender your life, all your sins even that one, to the Lord, and start a new life with him by grace through faith. And, and can I say today, and for those of us who are believers, we are God's hands. We are, we are to be the church, and that means we are to be his hand of hope 
to the world around us. We're going to talk about that tonight in our small group right here about more specific ways how we can be God's hand of hope. But whatever capacity, whether you are his hand of hope or you need it, God is here for you today. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're so grateful and thankful that we can call you our Father. We're thankful that you are sovereign over the womb as you are over the universe. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, King of our lives. And because you're King, you are in control. Our world doesn't like your control, Master, and has rebelled against it and would seek to eradicate it from every facet of our culture. But you are still on the throne, and we bow before you. Keep us humble. Keep us compassionate. Keep us loving for people who have not yet seen the truth and have not seen and experienced and by faith accepted the hope, the hand of hope that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray, Father, that we would love them, and though we disagree with them strongly, On this issue and perhaps many others, Father, may we always speak the truth in love and may we be the church to them. That you might use us and the gospel and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ to make his name great. That others might come to have life, not just pro-life, but eternal life in his name. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing for it's through Christ Jesus, our loving Lord, we pray. Amen.